Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 3, Episode 5. I'm Adam Deal, and this is Whitney Deal. We are married. We are both English teachers, uh, in case you didn't already know. And um, uh, we're talking about Dmitry Fyodorovich Karamazov today. Whitney, start us off uh, just like first impressions or like yeah, f- the first thing that comes to mind with Dmitry. The, well, the first time I read this, I think Dimitri got on my nerves a bit. Um, it was something that reminded me of his father. Like his father is supremely annoying, and there's something in Dimitri that reminds me of his father. The quoting of literature frequently, for example, um, which seems theatrical instead of sincere sometimes. I love literature, and I occasionally quote it or refer to it in real-life moments that help me understand life, but maybe it's just that the modern mind is not prone to quoting directly from literature, so it seems (laughs) pretentious or something. But people quote directly from literature and song lyrics, I mean, mean from movies and song lyrics and TV shows all the time, and it seems more normal, but it also seems like they're doing it a little comically or tongue-in-cheek. Like, if someone is holding forth, quoting from a very emotional movie, as a modern person, you feel kind of uncomfortable or like they're being a little false. And I don't think that's fair necessarily, but it is what it is. So, all that to say, some of your first impressions of Dimitri, he's either kicking someone hard in the head and acting like a lunatic, or he's being kind of maudlin and quoting literature to Alyosha in a moment where you would think he really ought to have a lot of remorse that's deep and sincere. So all that to say, my first impressions of him were not stellar. And his disorder, as he calls it, stressed me out. So both times I've read this, when I'm listening to the parts where he is like going to um, get his pistols back and he's covered in blood and he's got all this money hanging out of his hands and then he goes with all those supplies to Mokro and he doesn't know what he's doing. All that stressed me out. Yeah. It, it is stressful. That means it's effective, but he stressed me out as a character. And one of the things that, we're going to talk about with Alyosha, and I guess just like the bigger picture of the novel, I think I may have already mentioned this. I think that Alyosha is Alyosha um, is an example of how to be a Christian in an active love kind of way, such that when you are around someone that's incredibly stressful, like Dimitri, or incredibly uh, atheistic, like Ivan you can allow them to be themselves and it's almost like your faith allows them to exhaust their lack of faith and then they come closer to faith. And so um, that's of course something that I aspire to as a Christian is, is how can I be more Christ-like to someone like Dimitri? Um, And I think that, you know, this is a great novel in, in that it gives us these incredibly um you know like like most extreme cases and and yet Alyosha doesn't suffer a panic attack he doesn't you know he doesn't uh one of the phrases that I use 
thinking about my students is I don't want to uh, like take their anxiety from them because I don't want to just just absorb it into me. I want I want to help them acknowledge that they have it and then do what I can to to help them through it. But it's not it's not a transference of of stress from them to me. Uh, and Whitney, you know, concurs with, with her students. And I think that that's something that Ayosha does increasingly well in the novel. Um, but Dimitri is so, so overwhelming um, emotionally in the same way that Ivan is intellectually that Ayosha does have moments where he's just, he kind of gets pulled into their emotion. Yeah, it's difficult when you're around someone who's um, disordered, Spiritually, I use that word because that's the keyword for Mega. And he says, um, I've never liked all this disorder. And he says he's talking about a higher order. He says, there's no order in me, no higher order. Um, when you're around someone who's not sober-minded, who's spiritually disordered, it can be very easy to slide down that slippery slope with the person and become disordered yourself. Um, and I don't mean to say this as, as if I'm someone who's always spiritually ordered and sober-minded. That's not true. But, um, yeah, you want to help someone. You want to take on that responsibility for other people that this novel is talking about, that you don't wash your hands of people or say, am I my brother's keeper? But you also want to figure out how to create what they call in the modern world healthy boundaries so that myself doesn't start to disintegrate and my spiritual right. order doesn't start to disintegrate when I'm in contact with someone else's. Well, and I think that this, you know, talking about Dimitri, Dimitri would be a classic example of a toxic person. And, uh, you know, I think about that, that phrase a lot because in the, on the one hand, I want to avoid, you know, I, I don't want to be the person who gets in, entangled with a fool and then becomes foolish myself, like to Whitney's point. And at the same time, you know, there's the proverb that says, don't get entangled with fools lest you become a fool yourself. And then there's also the proverb that says, um, help the fool lest, lest he stay in his foolishness, which is how do you do both of the like it, it, that's that's one of the great challenges of the christian faith is how does the bible say both of those things and whitney whitney's got something on it she he could tell by my body language but she raised her hand that was a really relevant point for this book i'm so glad you brought that up because ivan that's just what ivan's complaining about in the grand inquisitor i'll just throw that in that the scriptures and Jesus are giving people a great deal of responsibility to apply wisdom in situations rather than saying, do this and making it straightforward and easy. Um, it's much more potentially stressful. It's much harder. It confers much more dignity on you to have to apply wisdom to a complex situation or a toxic person than just to know, like, if the scripture had just said, like, always stay away from a fool. That would be pretty straightforward. You would just kind of run away like Joseph runs away from the, you know, seduction of 
Potiphar's wife, but that's not the case. It's apply your hard-won wisdom that you've gotten from living and thinking and walking with God. And so, you know, I think about that concept of Ivan is the, the one who avoids the fool. And, you know, we've talked about this, like, let the vipers devour each other. And I think he does... He is he is committing the sin of not helping the fool out of his foolishness, and Where, he's doing it out of selfishness instead of wisdom or contempt. Yes, maybe instead of wisdom. Whereas I think there's also probably room in the novel for people who who sin by not staying out of. Like I would say, maybe uh, Smerdyakov or Ivan. I, I don't know how to divide this because it's just coming to me just now one of them sins by like getting involved with the other so uh, maybe Ivan I think Ivan is sinning by getting involved with the fool Smirjikov by wanting a little lackey yes and then realizing too late like this lackey is this lackey is toxic. I shouldn't have <laughs> taken him on as a lackey. And and I think that that's that's just human nature is is to to mix up when to get involved with the fools and when not to. And I think that only with Christian wisdom can you see those proverbs and and know when to do each. And I think Alyosha does. Uh, you know, in, in contrast to Ivan, Alyosha does both of those. And, and and he does them in a faithful way. So, um, really, I think you know when we're talking about Mitya, it, it's impossible to not cover the other two brothers. And so we're going to talk a lot about the other two brothers as well. But but I think that he's really, if you want to say who's the main character of this novel, I'd say it's Dimitri. Insofar as he, like I, I wrote out the pages that basically I highlighted for for Dimitri, and it's like. There's a big chunk in the middle that we talked about last time with Ivan from pages, you know, about 122 through 364 or so, which is, yeah, that's about a third of the novel. He really is not involved because it's it's Ivan's section. And so that's Ivan and Alyosha, a lot, most of it is Ivan and Alyosha, but there's some Smirjikov and, like, some other parts. But, um, but Dimitri is in the first third of the novel, at least half of the first third is Dimitri. Well, he's a, this active force that makes things happen. That, I think yes. that, that's part yes. of why he seems like the protagonist because you've got Alyosha, who, who's just poor in spirit. So he's all over the place and involved, but he's not pushing himself forward. Um, some of the most active things he does are so like, kind of gentle and tender like kissing Ivan that time like those are they're they're these profound acts but anyway Dimitri barrels in the room and starts kicking someone in the head or you know or he um barrels into the room waving money and covered in blood or he grabs someone's throat like he's going to choke them that's Dimitri yes at least for a great deal of the book and then even toward the end when he's not in that violent place, he kind of takes over the conversations that he has with Alyosha 
Like I think about when he's talking about Rakitin coming to visit him and complaining about the Bernards. And yes. He just, he's a protagonist. Right, right. He's not an observer, and he's certainly not a good listener. And, and you know, I think about this idea of, you know, when you're watching something or listening to something or, you know, in our case, reading something that's a trial, the person that's been murdered is kind of a non-factor. It, it's not about who you murdered. At this point, it's about whether you are the murderer or not. And um, I think that that, that just that um, just creates a different level of drama um, than the drama that that unfolds between Theodore and and uh, Mitya, which really, other than the scene at the seminary, there aren't a lot of interactions between those two characters. Uh, well, another interesting thing, you mentioned the trial. Mitya obviously is the center of attention at the trial, but he's even more the center of attention than normally he would be in a murder trial because there's only circumstantial evidence against him. So I, it seems to me in a normal murder trial, you'd have harder evidence to discuss, but they don't really have that. So they're just psychologically analyzing Mitya from two different angles the right. whole time. So it's just like, is Mitya like this? Is he is he a base person? Is he an honorable person? Would he have kept that $1,500 in his chest or not? Right. It's, it's all about him. Well, I think you bring a great point about the concept of a lot of times the evidence is the main character in a trial. Um, and so, so usually if the evidence is strong, then the lawyers are going to seem like they are the carriers of that strength. Um, and so it, because it's Dimitri on trial rather than another character, neither lawyer over, overwhelms Dimitri. Like he still seems like he, he is the center of attention even when he's sitting sitting silently like th- there's just something about he commands the attention of the room and he picked the perfect lawyer to be his lawyer. He picked a lawyer that that wasn't going to make him seem like a non-factor. It's almost like he picked the the lawyer that was going to tell the um like that was going to narrate the story in such a way that he just came across as innocent even if he had blood stains on his hands people would be like but he's really innocent it came down in the trial to basically his lawyer i think understanding him to a large degree and saying you know what yeah he he is an honorable man in in these weird ways he's a violent man and a sensualist but he's an honorable man it's reasonable to think like he's He's getting at some accurate things about Dimitri's personality, but then he's also taking it on down some weird paths that I think Dimitri and Dostoevsky would find incorrect, like basically saying there's no real crime in the case anyway right? for various reasons. But I think he understands Mitya pretty well in some ways. And... And another, to your point, that Mitya seems like the main character, even when he's just sitting there in the trial, he will just yell things out, which obviously you're not supposed to do. Um, I feel like enough things happen in this trial 
for sure to get it declared a mistrial in terms of like modern American right, right. jurisprudence. Like the way that Ivan just passes out and can't even finish his testimony, that that right there, it seems like it would be a mistrial. But when Katya is, um, suddenly changes her testimony yes. in the middle because she like gets too upset and then he's like, you have ruined me. Like he yells it out at her. Yeah, he... It seems like the type of person who would be the center of all eyes wherever he went. So I'm going to read the description of just like, you know, the opening description of, of Dimitri from my book. So it says, Woo, um, if I can not overshoot it. First of all, this Dmitry Fyodorovich was the only one of Fyodorovich Fyodor Pavlovich's three sons who grew up in the conviction that he, at any rate, had some property and would be independent when he came of age. He spent a disorderly adolescence and youth. He never finished high school. Later, he landed in some military school, then turned up in the Caucasus, was promoted, fought a duel, was broken to the ranks, promoted again, led a wild life, and spent, comparatively, a great deal of money. He received nothing from Fyodorovich before his coming of age and until then ran into debt. And so... That's, you know, that's who he is. He's, he's just someone who runs up debts, doesn't know how to repay them. I think, I think he's one of these people that thinks, like, I'm going to win the lottery. Like, you know, that's his mindset is, like, the way I will um, repay everything I owe is by one grand gesture or one, like, something will save me in the moment um, and to his credit, he he does have things like that happen to him. So maybe that's maybe that mindset is is just indicative of well, this is what's worked for me. So it's not like he's pie in the sky. Like it's never worked, but it might work. He seems he seems to have some luck, if that's even the right word. Providence maybe is a better word, but but. It's as if he has a guardian angel, you know, watching over him financially where he gets money just at the right times. Well, it's funny when he goes to see Madame Koklikov to ask her for money, it says that on the on the way there, he's just convinced that she's going to give him 3,000 rubles for some reason. He, he just becomes convinced. So that optimism, that kind of blind optimism and kind of I'll think about it tomorrow, like Scarlett O'Hara style, like I'll figure it out tomorrow how I'm going to pay this money back. But, you know, Dostoevsky, so Dostoevsky, I've heard people say that he put uh, traits of himself in each one of the brothers. Um, Even Smirchikov has the epilepsy. We've said that before. But Dostoevsky had a gambling problem. And he was perpetually in debt, um, partly because he couldn't even publish books. After he got back from Siberia, he couldn't publish books because he had to have permission from the censors, and he obviously was considered suspect because he had been a political prisoner and everything. But he thought that if he could just have go into gambling with the right mindset, that one day he was inevitably going to win, like as if he could exert mind control over the roulette table, and then he was going to win one day. So that trait seems to come through Dimitri a little bit. Um, 
not that he's explicitly gambling, but he kind of lives his whole life as a gamble. Um, if you like to gamble. <laughs> and Dostoevsky had this kind of magical thinking that he would apply to life. Like, he'd be desperately need of money, literally. He and his wife and baby would, like, not have another penny or something like that and wouldn't be able to buy food the next day. And he'd be, like, going to the roulette table, you know, like, spending their last cents thinking... I'm surely going to win. If I can just go in with no fear and total confidence, I'm going to win. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I actually read one of Dostoevsky's letters to his second wife, Anya, who, who, to whom the, the book is dedicated. And this is, this is in um, April of 1871. So this is, you know, the book's like being published in 1878, I believe. Um, and so it says... Anya, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Liuba, for the sake of our whole future, don't start worrying and get all upset. Read this letter carefully to the end. You will see at the end that disaster isn't really a reason for despair, but on the contrary, something may even have been gained by it, which will be much more valuable than the price paid for it! Exclamation point. And so calm yourself, my angel. Hear me out. Read this to the end. For Christ's sake, don't fall to pieces. Okay, so... That already sounds a little bit like Dimitri, but I'm going to like skip a little bit. It says, um, I, I didn't dare wire you, nor do I dare now, after your latest letter in which you write that you will be worrying about me. I can just imagine how it would have been, how it would have been had you received a telegram tomorrow saying, Shreben, see mirror, sick. Uh, which means that's how he wrote it. Uh, what would have become of you then? Ah, Anya, why did I have to go? Here is how it happened today. First of all, I got you a letter at 1 p.m., but not the money. Then I went home and wrote you an answer, a nasty, cruel letter. Why, I almost reproached you in it. I suppose you will get it tomorrow, Saturday, if you stop by the post office not earlier than 4 o'clock. I took my letter to the post office, and there the old man told me again that there was no money for me. It was then 2.30. And when I came by again for the third time at 4.30, he gave me the money. And when I asked at what time it arrived, he replied very calmly, around 2 o'clock. So why didn't he give it to me when it was there before, well after 2? Then, when I saw that I had, no, I had to wait until half past 6 for the next train out of here, I headed to the casino. Now, Anya, you may believe me or not, but I swear to you that I had no intention of gambling. And, and this, he goes on to talk about his gambling. And it, it, it's just, oh, it's so sad. It's like, it's so infuriating and so sad at the same time. And it's just like, it's like reading a letter from Dimitri. And so he says, by half past nine, I had lost everything and I felt like a madman. I felt so miserable that I rushed, in to, I rushed to see the priest. Don't get upset. I did not see him. No, I did not, nor did I intend to. And I was running toward the, his house in, his, in the darkness through unfamiliar streets, and I was thinking, why, he is the Lord's shepherd, and I will speak to him not as, as to a private person, but as one does to confession, or one does at confession. But I lost my way in this town, and when I reached the church, which I took for a Russian church, they told me in a store that it was not Russian, but Shini. I guess it means, you know, a, a synagogue. It was as if... Someone had poured cold water over me. I ran back home, and now it is midnight, and I am sitting and writing to you. Uh, and I won't go to see the priest. I won't go. I swear I won't. I think he's implying, like, 
I'm going to like go see a priest and then commit suicide. Well, as a Catholic priest, I, oh, oh, that's oh, sorry, one detail. Sorry, okay, like, sorry. He, okay, can I just say this letter? I read this yes. same excerpt of this letter in the biography. I think he gives up gambling after this. He does. Fin- he does. Like, finally. What year did that come out? 1871. I mean, what year was that written? Okay. 1880 is when Brothers Karamazov was published. So he That's had right. given up gambling for like almost a decade, thankfully, yeah. because it was so depressing reading his like shenanigans with gambling and how hard it was on his wife. However, that letter points out something that I think maybe is worth just like mentioning right now because you're talking about how he's like Dimitri and Dimitri is so like mean and violent sometimes. Like Dimitri will just be impulsively so mean and so hurtful. And then people will forgive him later because he kind of seems sweet again. Or they're like, he can't help himself. Dostoevsky seems to have been like that too. He was really irascible sometimes with everyone around him, but then he would kind of make up for it by being really winning and like kind other times. But you see in that letter, he took it as a sign from God that he thought he was at a Russian church and it was really a synagogue. And he was so horrified by that because he was really anti-Semitic. He railed against Jewish people, thought they were ruining Russia, like really went for it. Thought Hated Germany because he thought Germany was full of Jewish people, etc. Hated Catholics. Like the Grand Inquisitor is right. basically a Catholic antichrist. He he just had a lot of basically he hated everyone who wasn't Russian, is how yeah. it comes across. He just had incredibly passionate feelings against all different sorts of people. Yeah. So the letter goes on. I know I'm belaboring this, but it says, <laughs> it says And yeah, I prostrate myself prostrate myself before you and kiss your feet. I realize that you have every right to despise me and to think he will gamble again. By what then can I swear to you that I shall not, and he says, I shall not in italics, when I have already deceived you before, but my angel, I know that you would die, exclamation point, if I lost again. I am not complete, completely insane after all. Why, I know that if, if that happened, it would be the end of me as well. I won't, I won't, I won't, and I shall come straight home. Believe me, trust me for this last time, and it's like almost everything is, a, is italicized. Like he's like intensely saying it. Trust me for this last time, and you won't regret it. Mark my words from now on for the rest of my life. I will go. For, I will work for you in Libochka without sparing my health, and I shall reach my goal. I shall see to it that you two are well provided for. And he continues. And he says, A great thing has happened to me. I have rid myself of the abominable delusion that has tormented me for almost ten years. For ten years, or to be more precise, ever since my brother's death, when I suddenly found myself weighed down by debts, I dreamed about winning money. I dreamt, it, I dreamt of it seriously, passionately. But now it is all over. This is the very last time. Do you believe now, Anya, that my hands are untied? I was tied up by, my, by gambling, but now I will put my mind to worthwhile things instead of spending whole nights dreaming about gambling as I used to. And so my work will be better and more profitable with God's blessing. And it's interesting, you know, what he says, like, at, at the end of this, this letter, it, do, it does say Dostoevsky did keep his word this time he never gambled again. And so 
this concept of like he comes to that clarity and i think that that's exactly what does what dimitri does is he comes to a clarity of mind and uh, one of the things i want to talk about you know in contrast with ivan is dimitri seems to have I'm trying to think of like how to describe this. Both of them have, um, like like a a coming a coming to their senses, so to speak. And uh, Dimitri comes to his senses in a poverty of spirit, and so his reaction to all the suffering in the world is it's my fault. And Ivan starts with at least in the, in the context of the novel, as we talked about last episode, Ivan starts with this supposition that says all the suffering in the world is God's fault. And when he comes to his senses, he actually starts in insanity. Like, when he realizes that Smerdyakov has murdered his father, and when he comes in to uh, confess the, the, the murder is really his doing because he influenced the thought process of Smerdyakov to say there is no God, there is, you know, everything is permissible. He basically is trying to take on the, the, the sin that is not his. It's interesting that he and Dimitri are doing the same thing. Like, they're coming to this sense of, like, I am guilty. Yeah. I am responsible. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and it's just interesting that both of them come to the same conclusion, but it's almost like, Dimitri, like, commits to living it out, whereas Ivan has already committed to, like, all the suffering in the world is God's, you know, God's fault. And, and then when he realizes he's at, at, at fault, like, he's responsible for the murder of his father, his first, his first reaction is, is into insanity. And so it's, it's almost like, um, Dimitri's sober-mindedness at the result, you know, as a result of like going through the trial, is that he commits to like basically talking about God to the prisoners in Siberia, and Ivan is just like sick with brain fever, and so it's interesting like how they how both of them end up, and and kind of how you can see the seeds of it. In their like the 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 contrast of like the pride of Ivan and the haughtiness versus Dimitri's like abjectness and his his um, like self-flagellation kind of um, and I wanted to talk about so we're gonna talk about the um, the seminary episode on the major events episode. So we're, we, we might mention that on this episode, but we're going to like go into depth in that, like with the bowels and just like <laughs> everything that happens. Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, on another episode, but, but um, really that's like the first appearance of Dimitri and he comes in and it says, if I can find it. Um, okay. So he comes in in the chapter, why is such a man alive? Dmitry Fyodorovich, a young man of 28, of medium height and agreeable looks, appeared, however, much older than his years. He was muscular, and one could tell that he possessed considerable physical strength. 
Nonetheless, something sickly, as it were, showed in his face. His face was lean, his cheeks hollow, their color tinged with a sort of unhealthy, shallow, unhealthy sallowness. His rather large, dark, prominent eyes had an apparently firm and determined yet somehow vague look. Even when he was excited and talking irritably, he, his look, as it were, did not obey his inner mood, but expressed something else, sometimes not at all corresponding to the present moment. And so... Uh, there's this idea of, like, Dimitri seems like he's just pulled apart, right? And so one of the things that it says in the, um, the Arthur Trace, Dostoevsky, and the Brothers Karamazov book, it says, Dimitri is the emotional Superman who provides us with perhaps the most spectacular combination of good deeds and dirty deeds done by one man in the whole history of the novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, ever in literature, Dimitri Karamazov is the most... Um, uh, what what's what's the word like like um, he he's he's the most like extreme character I guess like he goes to both extremes to to a greater degree than any character in literature. He has the broad Russian nature that this book talks about. That's the, I think that the um, defense attorney says that about him. He both defense attorneys think of him as representing Russia. You know he's. I think part of why he's convicted is that he's compared to Russia and it's used as a fear tactic that if Dmitry Karamazov represents Russia, then Russia's a runaway troika, then we are all in trouble. We have to send the message that we don't want Dmitry to represent Russia. Um, but the broad Russian nature, um, the energy that he has with the Karamazov He's undecided about where he's going to channel it, but he has this life force about him that he could channel into serving and relieving the poor and making the world a better place. You know, there's so many... He has a vision by by the time he's gotten arrested. He starts having a vision of how he could channel his energy for these wonderful things, but he's channeled his energy into such horrific things in this novel already as well. And his energy reminds me a lot of Vincent Van Gogh, um, who I, kn- I know that he read this book. I'm almost, I'm almost positive he did. Um, but just that, that like intensity with which he does everything. Um, Vincent Van Gogh, before he was a failure as a painter, was a failure as an art salesman, as a missionary, as a preacher, as a teacher, um, he only sold one painting in his life and yet he's probably the most famous artist on earth now um and i you know, i'm wearing a vincent van gogh watch and my my phone case is also vincent van gogh um it, there's something about dimitri that i really like i know that whitney just did not take to him as easily but there's something about him that it, it's like i like intense people um because I can be a very intense person myself, so it's almost like game recognized game. But um, you know, I, I just think like Dimitri, it, he seems to be trying to figure out how to be alive at a much faster rate than anyone else in the novel, and so I have a great respect for that because he is not a coward at all. 
And that's one of the things that they, they remark about him is that he isn't cowardly. He's, he's honest. He just, he's basically desperate and honest. And so everything he does reeks of desperation, but it's never done in a like, um, like a duplicitous way or, or in a, in a like, um, disingenuous way. He, he, he seems to be doing everything so earnestly and fervently. And, um, there's something about that that I, I, I personally respect because it's, it's, he's artless. Like he's not doing it, um, artificially. He's doing it sincerely. Whereas Ivan is so artful that I think he has to be healed of that at the end of the novel. Whereas Dimitri's earnestness, to, to Whitney's point, uh, just needs to be channeled in the right direction. It's, it's almost like he's already got the poverty of spirit uh, that, can, that can push him into mourning and uh, uh, being meek and being uh, hungry and thirsting for righteousness and, and um, seeking to be pure of heart and, and making, you know, being a peacemaker. Like, like the, the, the aspects of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, he seems to just need to be, like, turned in the right direction and he will, like, fly there at light speed. Also, weirdly, um, Mitya reminds me of Lise, um, who I also find stressful. <laughs> it's my temperament, I guess. Like, um, Lise Kuklikov. Um, there's unpaid, it's, it's a section called A Little Demon in my book. So, Lise is so changeable. Um, she just seems like different characters almost that she's, she's so changeable. Um, at different points in the novel, which is kind of like Dimitri. She's has a broad Russian nature, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment in that chapter called A Little Demon where Alyosha says, smiling, he says, there's something spiteful and yet open-hearted about you. <laughs> and she says, the open-heartedness consists in my not being ashamed of myself with you. Um, and so she she really does seem to be candid with him and she kind of can't hold back in a way that she really kind of should in a, to be proper. Like she laughs at him and just acts inappropriate next childish. And she's lashes out at her mom. Like she can't control herself. It seems to me similar to Dimitri. And then it says, well, I'll just read you a little portion. Um, Alyosha says, you were in love with disorder And Lise says, yes, I want disorder. I keep wanting to set fire to the house. I keep imagining how I'll creep up and set fire to the house on the sly. It must be on the sly. I'll try to point it out, but it'll go on burning. And I shall know and say nothing. Ugh, what silliness and how bored I am. She waved her hand with a look of repulsion. It's your luxurious life, says Alyosha softly. Um, I think that that moment's powerful because it's like, she doesn't have responsibilities for anybody else and it's corrupting her. He's like looking at her and saying, you don't have a bad nature, but it's being distorted by your luxurious life where you you get fussed over and you don't have responsibility for anybody else. It'd be good for you if you did. Um, She's in love with disorder, 
but not genuinely. Like Alicia sees through that and is like, you just need some responsibility. And then you like order more. And yes, I, th- I think Dimitri's kind of similar. Like the best thing Dimitri could do to my mind is to either A, take on responsibility for sharing God's love and ministering to the people of Siberia that he's going to be in prison with and go, like he discusses. Um, or, you know, if he escapes, go with Grishinka and have children that he has to support, have right. responsibilities, like have people that he's clearly responsible for be a part of a community, like take on that sense that other people are your business. Yes. And it's interesting as you say that because I think about, you know, we have a child, Josephine, um, who hopefully is listening to this one day. But, you know, I think she has a little bit of Dimitri in her. I think she is an intense person. I think she is an earnest person. I think she is just thoroughly herself. Um, I hope that she will be an honest person. It's kind of hard to tell when she's one and a half. But... Uh, I get the impression that she's pretty honest because we'll just be like, "Do you want to do this?" And she's like, "Nah." Like she she she's not she does not seem to be like a, a little people pleaser at at age one and a half. We always talk about how she won't perform on command. So when she's around like grandparents or something like that, there sometimes will be this, Josephine, say this, Josephine, walk. Like when she was learning to walk, Josephine, come give me a kiss, and she's just like. Nah, like if she doesn't want, she's not going to do something that she doesn't want to do, which on the one hand can mean that you become willful and you act out and you act with violence toward others, which I do pray for her that she will learn to like to obey the Lord and like to obey her parents, find joy in it. Um, Because if you have a, a nature that doesn't just naturally want to, inauthentically please people. There's something beautiful in that. There's going to be something that's kind of perversely self-defeating in that. Right. And as someone who has a natural bent toward not people pleasing and just being honest and being real, (laughs) I've realized to, to Whitney's point about Dimitri, the best thing I can do is teach my own child who has those same tendencies how to channel those things into productive, flourishing ways and not destructive, um, you know, thing, th- things that, that will hinder herself or others. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's, that's, to Whitney's point, like that's, that's what everyone needs is like to have someone else. Maybe it's your own child. Maybe it's your <coughs> friend or a younger person that you mentor, or whoever it is, but that that God gives you life so that you can teach someone else how to be alive, and and how like how not to live, and and I think that Dimitri certainly has plenty of, <laughs> he has certainly uh, got plenty of evidence of how not to live, and it's it's interesting that he's he's confessing this, um, this is in like book whatever it is where the confessions are. It's um it's book three. I'm I'm turning my page here. It's in book three, The Sensualists, and it's uh confession in verse, confession in anecdotes, and confession heals up. Um 
that he's talking to Alyosha and basically just saying who he is, which, you know, to me, it's like Dimitri, everyone knows who Dimitri is. So it's, it doesn't seem like he needs to, like, confess it earnestly to Alyosha, but he feels like he should. And so just that concept of, like, th- this to me is the most indicative section about Dimitri because he's he's not trying to um, absolve himself of any guilt, but at the same time, he's not, like, flagellating himself. He's, he's not really feeling so much guilt or shame. He's just, it's almost like, He's, he's just revealing his heart to Alyosha, which I think is indicative of what a true Christian does to people is true Christians bring out the realness out of another person. And I think that, that people that are um, uh, uh, averse to being real will, will consciously avoid real Christians. And sadly, I think that people in the church that aren't genuine feel very off-put by people that are genuine. And it's like, because I think they know that that real person with real faith will, like, ferret out that person's doubt or, or lack of faith or sin or whatever it is. And all I can say is, like, that's... It, it's not to make you feel awful. It's just to let you feel real. It's like, that's that's what Jesus does for sinners is, like, he he brings out their sin like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 where he basically says you're living with this man and he's not your husband and you've already been married five times and she's like he told me everything I'd ever done and it's like the book of John does not say that he told her everything she'd ever done it just points out that Jesus like brings attention to her sin of adultery and yet she seems so, like, known in that moment that she just admits, like, this this man, you know, you've got to come see this person. This is this is the Messiah, and so, you know, I think that that's that's the goal of every Christian is is to show the Messiah. Like the the word Christian means little Christ, and so. Um, that's what Alyosha does. That's certainly what Whitney and I are trying to do is, is, is just to reflect the nature of Jesus, which is to begin with realness and, and to end with faith. You know, that, 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 that turning away, that repenting is, is the end result of uh, the, 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 the seed of faith, which, of course, goes to the, like, the, the epigraph for the novel. Um, and... You know, I, I was thinking about this confession. So, so Whitney, let's talk about this section in depth. Um, what kind of stands out to you in these chapters about Dimitri talking to Alyosha in the back alley? He, like, he sees him, and it's nighttime, and he's, like, he's waving his arms, like, wildly because he doesn't want to make any noise. But, but then... <laughs> He says, bravo, let's go. Mitya burst out in a delighted whisper. <laughs> and then it says, why am I whispering? Mm-hmm. Devil take it. Dmitry Fyodorovich suddenly shouted at the top of his lungs. <laughs> like, to me, I just think Dmitry is hilarious because he's just 
real. Like, he does things that are so just genuine and 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 like he just he goes from whispering to shouting at the top of his lungs i like that um that emotional dynamic but you know some people don't want to listen to like loud quiet loud nirvana style zombie by the cranberries music uh yeah i think you just asked me what stood out to me um this time through reading and listening to this novel, I had the thought, I may have said this before, but I had the thought that Dimitri loves God, but doesn't know how to obey him. He's so disordered. Like he says, one thing he says in the um, Confession of an Ardent Heart part that is called a verse where he quotes a lot of poetry. um, He says, though I may be following the devil, I am thy son, O Lord, and I love thee. And I feel the joy without which the world cannot stand. Um, Ivan is on the opposite extreme, I would say, where he's obeying God's commands in some ways better, in the outward ways, right? In the ways that are not so hard to obey in a way, like he's not getting drunk. He's not like pursuing a woman like Grishinka. He's not brawling. He's He's not disorderly from the outside at all. But on the inside, Ivan's without love for God or others. Right, and right. so Dimitri, Dimitri loves Grushinka with something more than just a lust, which I think is partly shown by the fact that he wants to step aside and like let her be happy when he thinks she's going to go be able to go back with her, you know, original lover. And he says, I, he, he's thinking of killing himself when he goes to Mokra that, that second time he's seeing him killing himself. And he says, I'm going to take myself out of the way so that I, the insect that I am, I won't ruin anyone's happiness. And I think he means Grushinka's. He's like, I'm going to completely bow out of life and let her be happy. I think in his, in his misguided way, he does love Grushinka and it comes out that she loves him too, like in, in their own passionate kind of unhealthy ways. But all that to say, Dimitri is a person who has love and Ivan's a person who longs for morality and order in the universe. I think either of those paths can get you to God. Like just having a spontaneous love in your heart, even though you struggle with sin or having a spontaneous desire for moral order and, and lawfulness and righteousness in the world, even though you struggle to love God on an emotional level, God can use either one of those to pull you to right. himself. So that strikes me. Um, and also, he says explicitly in the end of that that ardent heart section that I was talking about um, that he's torn between uh, the Madonna and Sodom, is how he puts it. He feels like the contradictions are existing side by side within himself, he says. Um and those are, to some extent, those are personified by Katerina Ivanovna and Grishenko. But I like the fact that Dostoevsky does not give into that like virgin and whore dichotomy that you see in literature sometimes. Right. Grishenko has got a potential for a ton of goodness in her, similar to Dimitri. And Katerina has got kind of a, like a devil's worth of like scorn and pride in her. Even though she's like Ivan on the outside, she's an honorable woman. 
And I think you're bringing a good point, which is somehow Dostoevsky creates these women that seem so arch-typical, like the, they're such archetypes, and yet they're entirely real, such that I can imagine Katerina Ivanovna, and I can imagine Grushinka, and I think I mentioned this already, but Grushinka to me is very much a Brett Ashley character. So it's like she's just the 19th century Russian version of like 20s flapper Brett Ashley, British nurse. Um, and so just that idea of, like you were saying, <laughs> Dostoevsky isn't um, like pandering to um, a strictly allegorical reading, but he's, he's creating this thing that seems somehow in, intensely allegorical and intensely real at the same time. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I mentioned Brett Ashley in part because, like, I always equate, not equate, but I, I, I always draw comparisons of real people to her because I think that Ernest Hemingway wrote that character so much based on Duff Twisden, who is the woman that um, went on the, the, the bullfighting trip with him, um, and Harold Loeb, who's the basis for Robert Cohn. He basically just fictionalized a real story. And so, you know, I think that's that's a certain skill, like being able to just be like, you know what, this would make a good novel. Whereas Dostoevsky is inventing this. This is this is just a, a completely his doing. But at the same time, he read all these newspapers, like we've talked about, so that he has all these examples of things that he can put in that make it, like tether it to the real world in a sense of like it's it's set in the real world with created characters that are somehow um, like like re- the realization or like the culmination of people. I think because he had that broad Russian nature, he he was a complex person, so he could pour different aspects of himself into different characters, and they all seem like distinct and complex characters, but they he he encompassed all of them. Um, to some extent, just side note, interesting fact. Um, when I was reading about his first wife, he had this really tempestuous relationship with his first wife. She reminded me of Katerina Ivanovna. Yes. Yes. And so I think that's the thing is like any writer is going to base characters on people they know to, to a degree they can't just create a character out of nothing with, with no um, human basis. And so, you know, I think about the point you made about, um, like, the Madonna and Sodom. Like, total faith uh, to the degree of, like, Mother Mary, like, like letting God impregnate her and, and facing the potential, like, societal abandonment and, and um, you know just the judgment of the world um, versus Sodom, which is the complete abandonment of any trace of God. And, you know, sadly, I I just, I see society saying, you know what, Sodom sounds better. Like, let's just run God out of town and and just basically have everything as permissible uh, mindset. And, you know, I, I think like Las Vegas is a good example of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Most of the people that go to Las Vegas, not everyone, 
but most of the people that go there go there to sin. It's called Sin City. And so not only do they go there to sin, but they go there because they think their sin will somehow stay under the cover of darkness. And and I think that that's... It's interesting that Dimitri is is claiming that. He's, he's claiming that he has this, like, impetus to want to be not just a sinner, but someone who is, like, not going to be judged for that sin or someone whose sin won't come to light. The back alleys, he calls yes. them. He yes. wants to... He likes living in the back alleys. And, <coughs> you know... I do think it, it is very hard to to put ourselves in the level of faith that Mary, you know, put in God. I mean, that is it 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 is remarkable how much faith that would take, because I mean, it, it's not just carrying the child. It's not just being pregnant. It's that she had to be the mother of Jesus on earth. Like, she had to watch him be crucified. I mean, it, it's it's just, it's, it's beautiful in its intensity. And it's something that I think that if humans are allowed to just go to their own devices, they want that level of intensity. They either want that level of intensity of, of pure faith or pure, just d- like devolution and 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 disorder and uh, like the ability, like everything is permissible. They they want to be able to just do whatever they want with no consequences. And the only thing that keeps us, you know, f- from doing that is, is basically the grace of God the law, the, the sense of we live in a society, to quote a meme. Um, a sense of your own honor and self-respect, yes. which keeps Dimitri somewhat in check. Like, and, yeah, go yeah. Ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. And, and, you know, the book of Romans speaks to this, um, that God has given everyone a conscience and that we do have a conscience basically keeping us from thinking all, at all times like, I can do whatever I want and, you know, like, who cares who it hurts? Who cares? I mean, in, in the book of Genesis, the the angels of God go to visit Abraham and the people of Sodom come out and try to rape them. And then uh, uh, Lot's daughters, uh, Lot tries to send his daughters out and it is like, you know, like, just, just have sex with my daughters instead. They're like, no, we're going to, you know brutally rape these these men of God that are angels come to earth um, and and just th- that's what level of intensity the people of Sodom had I think that Dostoevsky sees that in the Russian people he sees that we could devour ourselves the way that the people in Sodom did and and just basically um, just just almost like taint ourselves irreparably and it you know it, to to some extent it, it it did happen i mean the the the, the russian revolution and, and the soviet era basically wiped almost all traces of faith out of russia and and yet here we are now in 2022 where I, 
you know, to what degree they're misguided, I, I can't say just because I don't know enough about where the Russians see themselves. But the Russian status on this Ukrainian war is we, we are a spiritual people and our spiritual capital is Kiev. And therefore, these, these regions of, of Ukraine that we're taking back for Russia is not just a land grab economic uh, motive, it is a it has a spiritual purpose, and and Vladimir Putin has said said as much. Now, like I said, to what degree is is that actually true? I just I can't say, but you know, people that see this happening are just like, why would Russia do this? And it's like, well, they have reasons. Like if if you in, if instead of seeing something that's evil, you would start to look into like why why might this happen? Instead of, this should never happen. It's like Ivan is the type to say, this should never happen. You know, like Ukraine uh, should be sovereign, you know, under all circumstances. And it's like, but do you know everything that's happening in Ukraine? Like the same people that would say like gay marriage is wrong don't realize that like Ukraine is trying to pass gay marriage right now. Whereas in Russia, it's illegal and, and... it's it's just there are a lot of factors involved and 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 I think Dostoevsky is is giving the nuances in someone even as unnuanced as as Dmitri um and and I think that that's the challenge of of just humanity in general it's like we we want to be able to say that's Sodom and that should be destroyed and yet we all have the capacity for Sodom and so, like, what's keeping God from destroying me right now? Well, it's his grace. When it comes to these geopolitical matters, like, you don't know when someone is being authentic in their statements or just spinning something um, to hide base or motives. Because power is at the root of most geopolitical questions right and I think listening to this probably some people are saying this is not about this novel why are you going off on this tangent but I think about Dostoevsky being incredibly invested in current events yes um (laughs) like he wanted to set his novels in the contemporary world that he lived in because he wanted them to address what was happening in the ideology and current events like of that moment um and in his day, Poland was the the place oh, that was contested. You know, like Russia was sort of back and forth across the course of the 19th century in terms of like how much control they exercised over Poland. And then you have these Poles um, in the novel who, like, I think that Dmitri drinks to Poland, but they refuse to drink to Russia. And they, the Poles turned out to be dishonorable and... Um, Dostoevsky was so patriotic and, you know, had some healthy disdain, unhealthy disdain for Poles. And so just thinking through, like, his Russian patriotism is an important part of this novel because he believed that Russia had this kind of messianic claim almost as a nation, which right. I to me, seems foolish. Like, it's not scriptural. You know, he's just imagining that. But he believed that the Russian Orthodox Church was the one church that was holding closest to the truth of the scripture, and therefore it had to be a 
a missionary to all the other nations of the world to that truth and that it was going to have that special role. Um, but then he also was wrestling in this novel with like the Russian national character and how it could, like you say, either go toward Madonna or Sodom very easily. And Dimitri represents Russia in this novel. I mean, explicitly several people say that, um, at least to some extent, the great thing about this novel, like you said, is that it can be allegorical and realistic at the same time. It's not really confined to either, but Dimitri, I actually think that one of the things that drove me crazy about about Dimitri at first is that he would say that he did something dishonorable, but then he would say, but I'm actually honorable, and it would just get on my nerves because I'm like, stop lying, dear. You know, keep telling yourself that, Mitya. Like when, <laughs> when he seduces that girl, you know, he's on on a dark sled with a these troika. young people. And, yeah, and he... um he doesn't go into detail or anything, but he just tells Alyosha, I, I seduced this girl. I got her to do things she would not have done if she didn't think I was going to come back and um, ask for her hand in marriage the next day. And I just never went back. But I'm an honorable man, so I never told anybody. And that's not being an honorable man. Like your actions, regardless of whether you told anybody, if you told anybody, at least half the people you told would think you were a sleazeball for doing it. They wouldn't admire you for it. It wouldn't benefit you to tell anybody. You got what you wanted. You got the titillation of the sensuality and the secrecy. Like, I would get sick I would get sick of him kind of telling himself he's an honorable man. But then, like a page or two later, he'd say something like, well, you know, when I was telling you about what happened with Katya and how, you know, I made her come to my room and then I ended up not doing the dark thing I thought about doing. He says, and I fancy that in telling you about my inner conflict, I have laid it on rather thick to glorify myself, but let it pass and to hell with all who pry into the human heart. (laughs) But That's Mitya in a nutshell. He's all over the place. He's like, all right. Yeah. I might have exaggerated telling that story. I might have really like been trying to make myself sound kind of kind of dramatic and awesome, but ugh, whatever. I don't know. It's like I don't even know exactly when I'm being sincere and I'm trying to be sincere, but I'm all over the place. I'm disordered. Yeah. And so that that part that you're talking about comes right after this part where he says, Can there be beauty in Sodom? Believe me, for the vast majority of people, that's just where beauty lies. Did you know that secret? The terrible thing is that beauty is not only fearful, but also mysterious. Here the devil is struggling with God, and the battlefield is the human heart. And I think that Dimitri, it's almost like he has this, um, he's like a, a, a spiritual savant. Like, he understands that, he articulates that in that moment. The battlefield for God and the devil is the human heart. And, of course, you know, it makes me think about love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think that maybe every character in this novel loves God with one of those, except for Alyosha, who loves him with all of those. And, and you know, to Whitney's point about, like, Dimitri being like, you know, I'm, I'm being overly dramatic. I think that Dimitri loves God with his heart or maybe his soul, but but his mind, no. Because, like you said, he just kind of is dismissive of himself in that moment. 
almost like he's at this point of epiphany and then he backs away from it. Um, but he certainly doesn't love God with his body, like his, his strength, you know, his, his, his physical, uh, you know, undertakings are certainly not very virtuous. But, um, but I think that that's, he, he is hitting on something that I think this novel is, is, is intimately about. And, and that's why I bring up, um, you know, the conflict with Russia and Ukraine is like, I think that Dostoevsky understood Russia's role in the world, not from a, um, like, pie-in-the-sky idealist vision, but, like, he had something of the, the quintessential Russian character that makes Russia say, we need to be a principal protagonist player on the world stage. And, and I, you know, to the degree that, that they've done so in the last uh, 150 years is kind of amazing. I mean, there are a lot of nations, like, I, bless their hearts, Great Britain just doesn't, I mean, they, they don't really have a, a sway on the world anymore. So Dostoevsky felt like he had this um, stereotype, I guess you would say, that he worked with in his mind about every nation. And for Britain, it was like they're very decent, kind of almost unassuming people when you meet them just down to earth and practical, even the rich ones. But they just, they're too practical. They don't have like the spiritual element, you know, enough. Um, he felt like Russia, Russians were willing to go to extremes for their beliefs. They were willing to pursue matters of the spirit over matters of, like, material gain or material practicality. He felt that that gave them part of their special role. I think he felt that Russia was responsible for all other nations, the way he's kind of saying that human beings should be responsible for each other. But, you know, if you think about it, Russia, Russia did take on or seek to take on a messianic role or a missionary role. It's just that they were trying to spread the, the gospel, you know, quote unquote of communism. Right. Right. And I think that you're hitting a great point, which is it is just in the Russian character as a nation and and as the people of Russia to need to tell everybody about it, whatever that um, philosophy is. And so uh, I was listening to a podcast where people were talking about Trader Joe's and how the people that shop at Trader Joe's don't just shop there. They, they want to talk about how wonderful it is and how everyone should shop there. And we don't have a Trader Joe's in Augusta. Um, but I know if we did, I, I could like name several people off the top of my head that would go there just because it's Trader Joe's. And um, no matter how bad the staff was there, they'd still be like, we got to go because it's Trader Joe's. And I think there's just a loyalty to the, the cause, for lack of a better word. And I think that Russia is just a nation of people loyal to the cause that, that want to be just fully in something. It's, it's not a nation of um, jaded people. You know, it's a nation of people that have some earnestness. Like, I would say Ivan has a lot of earnestness, but it's it's coded in this calmness. Dostoevsky certainly believed that jadedness and cynicism were European implants into Russia. <laughs> like, Smirnikov is, you know, painted as being influenced by 
yes, Europe, yes. Um, wanting to kind of escape to Europe, me yourself, it's like that. Um, to some extent, Ivan is too. Um, but yeah, that the he felt the Russian national character. And, you know, I was reading it just a history of Russia. And it was kind of making the same point that that, that writer felt that the Ru- Russian national character wants to kind of go to extremes and jump wholeheartedly into... So in the 19th century, when this novel was written, a lot of educated Russians had jumped wholeheartedly into like Western liberalism and, and atheism. And um, Dostoevsky wanted to pull him back over that ledge if he possibly could. Well, and to your point, <laughs> the, no one in Europe went communist as as wholeheartedly as Russia. And, and so... You know, I think you're exactly right. Like you're 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 capturing something that Dostoevsky understood very deeply, and I think that that's one of the things about Dmitri is like, I think he understands himself the way that Dostoevsky understood Russia. Like, he has done so much soul searching that he is he has not hidden anything from himself, and so when he's confessing it to Alyosha in these confession chapters, it just seems like. There's there's no artifice to it. it. It's just real. He tries to correct himself when he does use artifice, if that makes sense. Like, yes. which I do appreciate. And it's interesting that he says, um, like he, he's talking about the situation that we talked about about the the girl in the troika. That he, it says um, she let me do a lot in the darkness. Mm. So. Um, so he's talking about this, and he says, um, he says, no, I'll tell you something more curious, but don't be surprised that I'm not ashamed before you, but even seem to be glad. And then Alyosha says, you say that because I blushed. I blushed not at your words, not at your deeds, but because I'm the same as you. And then Dimitri says, you? Well, that's going a bit too far. And then Alyosha says, no, not too far. Alyosha said, hotly. Apparently the thought had been with him for some time. The steps are all the same. I'm on the lowest and you are above, somewhere on the 13th. That's how I see it. But it's all one and the same and exactly the same sort of thing. Whoever steps on the lowest step will surely step on the highest. And then um, Dimitri says, so one had better not step at all. Which is, it's, it's interesting how many biblical echoes there are in this novel. That's exactly... So it's better not to get married. And then Jesus, you know, Jesus says, well, not everyone can accept that. It's, it's like Dostoevsky is just like just planting these words from Scripture into the everyday conversation. And then Alyosha says, not if one can help it. And then Dimitri says, can you? And he says, it seems not. And I think that that's – it's just very – I don't know. It it goes back to kind of where we started with this conversation about Dimitri and and Alyosha. Dimitri is being fully himself around Alyosha, and Alyosha like budges a little bit and and doesn't stay in this like I'm I'm a seminary student and I I never sin. He says like I have exactly the nature that you have, and I'm just further back on on the path of sin than you are. And I think that that's that's part of the Christian faith is to, is to admit you are a sinner. Like, poverty of spirit 
is not something that you get because someone else tells you you're poor. It's you have to accept it and acknowledge it and, and, and claim it and basically profess your poverty in order to get the richness of Christ. Um, that just makes me think of one of my favorite parts of the novel that involves Dimitri, actually. It's the um, section called A Hymn in a Secret. Um, it's a good bit later in the novel is um, when he's already... I think the trial's the next day, and Alyosha oh, goes yeah, to visit. Um, but he says, um, Dimitri says to Alyosha, I must pour out my heart to you. <laughs> he's got to confess again. Brother, these last two months I've found in myself a new man. A new man has risen up in me. He was hidden in me, but would never have come to the surface surface if it hadn't been for this blow from heaven. So, like, first of all, that, that he can see that that suffering that he's going through, the suffering that Father Zosima bows to because he sees it's going to be so deep and profound, that suffering is the only means that would have made him a new man. So God used the only means that would have made him a new man. The, he used any means necessary. And seeing suffering through that lens is just quite different from the way that Ivan is thinking. I believe that Ivan wanted his father dead because Ivan was mistreated and, and neglected and had to go through so much shame as a child because of his father's neglect. I think he's holding a bitter grudge, and that's why he, he wishes his father were dead. Um Ivan's suffering, he can't see any purpose in it whatsoever. He just hurts. Um, Dimitri sees this purpose. He says, one may resurrect and revive a frozen heart in that convict. Talking about how if he gets to go to Siberia, maybe he can be like a missionary to the convicts. One may resurrect and revive a frozen heart in that convict. One may wait upon him for years and at last bring up from the dark depths a lofty soul. Um he says, we are all responsible for them. We are all responsible for all. All are babes. I think that's so special as a parallel to what Ivan says about the suffering of children. Dimitri, is, his love is so much more expansive. Ivan says, we better confine ourselves to children because no one else is lovable enough to even be sympathetic. Let's be honest. Let's just think about children suffering. Dimitri says, you know what? Hardened convicts in the prisons of Siberia they're babes. They're like that hungry yeah. little baby that I dreamed about when I was getting interrogated. That, you know, he, he has that dream and he wakes up and says, why is no one feeding that baby? And he's expanded that to be, well, why is no one going to help those convicts? It, there, his love is able to be so expansive because he already had love in his heart. And when God is channeling that love, it's able to expand and expand and cover multitudes. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned something that goes all the way back to the first uh, chapter of the book. In most cases, people, even wicked people, are far more naive and simple-hearted than one generally assumes, and so are we. And I think that that's, like, that's where we're coming at this from, is that even as much wisdom as we might have or as much expertise or understanding or research as we might have done or experience, we too are naive because we, we are still children, uh, you know, advancing in spiritual age. 
And I think that, you know, Zosima is a great example of, in his old age, physically, he still seems completely reliant as a child is on a parent to God. And so, you know, think about just the way that, that Dimitri is toward the end. He seems to be more free in the end than anyone else in the whole novel, even Alyosha. And I think that he has just accepted his fate, which is he will get punished for this crime. He, he deserves worse than he's getting. And even though he's not guilty of the murder, he is guilty of mistreating Katarina. He's guilty of, uh, you know, fill in the blank, many things. And, you know, I was thinking about this idea of um, Katarina Ivanovna, and, and you were bringing up Ivan, like why he, why he wants his father dead. It, it's not just that he hates his father from his treatment as a child, it's that he hates Dmitri for getting Katerina Ivanovna and not wanting her. Basically, he's like, if I can kill these two birds, I will get the money from my dad and the woman of my dreams, Katerina Ivanovna. And I think that, that, that there is that element in every heart that says, I need something. And other people are obstacles to me getting what I need. And Ivan won't admit it to himself on a conscious level that he actually thinks that way and wants those things, which is part of what's broken about him. He's When he finally says, I'm a scoundrel, you know, once he kind of slowly, slowly starts letting himself realize that that's what he wanted and that he has assented to it, he's it breaks him because yeah. some... Dimitri seems to have somewhat more accurate of a sense of who he is than Ivan, I would say. Um, Ivan didn't seem to want to let himself know who he was. Yeah. And it's interesting that he is the one that is genuinely attracted to Katerina Ivanovna because Katerina Ivanovna is that they're birds of a feather. Like, they both are proud. They both um, see themselves as, like, too virtuous to be corrupted, uh, but in, in, in from a place of arrogance rather than a place of humility. And um, you know, I was thinking about uh, as I reread the the confessions um, sections with with Dmitri. It it turns out that Katerina Ivanovna uh, proposes to Dmitri. He doesn't even propose marriage to her. She's just like, I am proposing to you. Like, I want to be engaged to you. And her, her attitude is, I will let you cheat on me, walk all over me, treat me as furniture in the house. I just, I owe it to you that you saved my father's life. And there's something beautiful in that. I think that that, that genuine, uh, earnest desire to, to show someone his worth because of his good deed is... If it had come from a place that wasn't pride. Yes, would, would be a good thing. And the problem is she doesn't know how not to take it into pride because she's not really coming at it through love. She's coming at it through a sense of um, ranking. Like, like to your point about, about like military stuff, the power. She's trying to uh, take back the power 
that Dimitri had over her by basically saying, I will be your long-suffering wife. It gives her back moral power. Yes. It seems like it's taking away her power to say, like, treat me like a doormat. I don't care. But she feels it's giving her moral power over right. him that she felt she had lost. Like, you got to imagine, like, if you're a young woman and you've been looking scornfully at this man in public social settings and saying, Ugh. it sounds like she was looking at him. He could tell that she was looking at him at parties and things and being like, drunken fool. Not an handsome idiot. enough to tempt me. Yeah, just that she had contempt for him. And then all of a sudden she has to abase herself before him. He behaves nobly. Might have actually made her feel better if he had sexually assaulted her. Because then she, I mean, that sounds crazy, and it wouldn't really. But, like, I think in her mind she's like, I cannot believe that I came over here and abased myself to sacrifice for my father, and then he was all noble, and now I feel like I'm in his debt forever. Yes. How do I get the playing field even again? Well, I can be like a faithful, devoted dog in his service or something, and then the playing field will be even. That's why it's called a laceration, because it's like she's whipping herself, you know, by being with Dimitri, even though she doesn't want to be, doesn't love him. And I think you're bringing up a great point about the fact that she cannot reconcile in her mind something in the same way that Ivan can't. And hers is um, something personal, you know, to, to Dimitri and Ivan's is something spiritual, with God himself, but I think that that's why I say they're birds of a feather, that they, they both are, are concrete enough in their thinking that they cannot see gray. They can only see themselves as on the white side of black, on the black side of white. And um, I, I just think, you know, that's one of the things that I think people have to learn is like how to be in the gray and how other people are in the gray and how, you know, what seems as something like evil that why would God allow this? It's not, it, it's not fully evil in the blackness of, uh, of sin. It's something that is a maneuver, a military maneuver in the, in the, in the human heart to win that territory for himself. And, you know, like the idea of like burning a bridge after uh, or like may- maybe you need to get across it to get supplies and stuff but if if you burn it or destroy it the the enemy can't get across it and so you know you have some some advantage by burning it it, it wouldn't make sense to, to for certain things to happen and, and of course you know how do we make sense of the traumas that happen to us it's not that god's like this is coming to you. Hope you enjoy it. It's that God allows Satan to 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 try to take territory that he knows he can win back. And it's only in that territory being changed by the trauma and the trial that you recognize the need for for uh, someone to have sovereignty over that territory. And and you know, sadly, sometimes people just give that territory over to Satan. And and I think that. Dimitri certainly has plenty of reasons to give himself over to Satan in this novel, and yet when he doesn't at the end, and, and you know, Ivan ultimately doesn't either, it's, it's, a, it's a sign that 
that God can win any heart that allows him to, to battle for it. And, and I think that um, Dimitri has recognized the battle at the beginning of the novel, and by the end of the novel, he, he has accepted his position, which I think, you know, when you think about, like, ranking in the kingdom of heaven, like, Jesus talks about the, the, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. There is a ranking system to the kingdom of heaven that's, that's maybe not fair. It's not equal. That there will be people who are very highly, uh, I don't know, honored in heaven uh, that you never even knew existed in, on earth or that, that were people like John the Baptist. Um, but I think that that's, that's part of why I said that with Ivan is like, he ends the novel maybe on a path to be a John the Baptist, like man in the wilderness, like preaching for repentance, you know, and, and, and baptism. And, and like, he, he basically is going to say, I am guilty, you know, to the same degree that like Paul is saying, I'm the chief of sinners. Like, I, I think that that's where the novel gets us to for, for Ivan and for Dimitri it's it's different because it's it's almost like he's seeing himself more as a missionary at the end um, that wants to to share basically the mercy that God has given him with other people who haven't who haven't received mercy from from society or the state or something like that. Yeah, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that um Basically, Dimitri is like, Alyosha, I'm going to let you decide. I just, I trust you. Should I try to escape or should I just go? Like, I'm convicted. Should I just go to take the punishment, even though I'm not guilty, or should I try to escape? And Alyosha takes this merciful stance that's like a little bit unexpected for me, at least, where he says, you know, you don't have to be strong enough to stand such suffering. Like, it's okay. You can let Ivan help you escape. <laughs> like, you, you know, it's really okay. I don't think that you're strong enough to stand such suffering well for an extended amount of time, Dimitri, but that's okay. You don't have to be that strong. Um, again, it's like the difficulty of applying wisdom in a situation, because I think the most obvious thing to do would be to say, you're convicted, face your punishment. Like, right. similar, so Zosima tells the, the visitor, you know, the mysterious stranger who comes to visit him over and over, you need to confess publicly and take your punishment. But he was guilty of the murder. True. Elias just looking at Dimitri and saying, I, I think you are going to run out of kind of strength and moral steam if you're there long enough. Um it's okay for you to escape. You didn't actually commit this murder and kind of has a kind of mercy on him and seems to be kind of speaking for God in that moment. Just a quick aside. So I'm reading um, a book called Peace Like a River by Leif Anger for my book club right now. And a part of me thinks that it must be influenced by the Brothers Karamazov. There are just quite a few overlaps, but one of which is that the whole novel centers on, there's a... um, a family um, with three kids and the oldest son commits a murder and it's kind of understandable why he would do it. Like it's, it's these scary guys and it's a home invasion. And, but anyway, he commits a murder and he runs from the law rather than taking his punishment. He escapes from prison. 
And his father, who's this very godly man, um, won't cooperate with the authorities and is trying to find him and is basically going to try to help him stay out of prison. And it's just exploring the concept of like how you relate to the law if you're a, a God-following person. And this book does the same thing in a really fascinating way. You know, this is also in A Hymn and a Secret. It says, um, oh, yes, this is Demetri talking. Oh, yes, we'll be in chains and there will be no freedom. But then in our great grief, we will arise once more into joy without which it's not possible for man to live or for God to be. For God gives joy. It's his prerogative, a great one. And by the way, the word blessed, uh, you know, in the in the Beatitudes is also translated as happy or like joyful is the one who is poor in spirit, is the one who mourns, etc. Um so the fact that he says um, God gives joy there, it's like I'm sure Dostoevsky knew that in the Russian translations as well. He says, let man dissolve in prayer. How would I be there under, underground without God? Rakitin's lying. If God is driven from the earth, we'll meet him underground. It's impossible for a convict, for a convict to be without God, even more impossible than for a non-convict. And then from the depths of the earth, we, the men underground, will start singing a tragic hymn to God in whom there is joy. Hail to God and his joy. I love him. And it says, Mita was almost breathless uttering his wild speech. He grew pale. His lips trembled. Tears poured from his eyes. I mean, the intensity of, of Dimitri, I think, could be off-putting. But at the same time, it's it's completely real. It's not an act. Like, he is having an emotional reaction in this moment. And it says, no, life is full, and there is life underground, too, he began again. You wouldn't believe, Alexei, how I want to live now. What thirst to exist and be conscious has been born in me precisely within these peeling walls. Rakitin doesn't understand it. All he wants is to build his house and rent out rooms, But he, but I was waiting for you. And besides, what is suffering? I'm not afraid of it, even if it's numberless. I'm not afraid of it now. I was before. You know, maybe I won't even give any answers in court, which is like hilarious because, of course, he's going to, he just can't help himself. He's going to talk in court. And it seems to me there's so much strength in me now that I can overcome everything, all sufferings, only in order to say and tell myself every moment, I am, which is, you know, I am is the, the translation of the name of God. In a thousand torments, I am, writhing under torture, but I am, locked up in a tower, but still I exist. I see the sun, and if I don't see the sun, still know that it is. And I think that that's, it says the whole of life is, is there in knowing that the sun is. And I think that, that's, that there's just so much beauty in that moment that, that connects to uh, a point in crime and punishment where, uh, I guess Raskolnikov is reading something. I can't, I can't remember the detail, but the, the detail is there's someone who is chained on a, a, the top of a rock and cannot get off of it, but still wants to live. And that, that like desire to destroy yourself is, is, is coming from a sinful place, not a holy place. And, and that Dimitri, you know, even after wanting 
to kill himself earlier in the novel, he has gotten to that point where he's like, even if I can't see the sun, I know that the sun is there. And I think that that's, that's where people that don't know God yet, that's where you should start, is like, just because you can't see him, cause you, just because you can't acknowledge his work, doesn't mean that his work hasn't started already. And I think that Dimitri's point where he's, you know, he, he's saying, I love God. I mean, here's someone who, who only has the extremes of emotion. He's the emotional Superman. And so his, his love is going somewhere. And I think that because he wants to love Grushinka rather than Katerina Ivanovna, he's not loving for something where he's going to feel like he's praising himself. He's going to be loving for a, in a way that, that he's like compromising himself. And, and, um, and I think that, you know, in this moment of the, the him and a secret, he's, he's, he's really getting to that point of saying like, like I love God and, and my love for other people is coming from the knowledge of his love for me. And, uh, you know, I, I can attest to that's, that's where my love comes from. Like, Without God's love, I have no love to give other people. And so just to my point of like, even if you don't believe in him, that doesn't mean he hasn't started work in your life already. You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for God. And so, you know, Dimitri, as a character, you know, we've talked so much about him, and yet there's so much more to say about him. I mean, he, he just, he really is uh, an overwhelming factor in this novel uh, kind of like Fyodor Pavlovich I think I think there wasn't room enough in the novel for both characters and so Dostoevsky's like one of these has got to die <laughs> he refuses to resolve and I appreciate that because when you watch too much or read too much fiction that's not really high quality fiction or even sometimes it is you think that people in real life should just change and stay changed and just resolve themselves. But that's not actually how sanctification works in my experience of the world. It's really slow. And the old nature can rear back, rear back up, rear back up, whatever, at any moment. Especially if you, it's like you're trying to tame your spirit and learn I've heard the metaphor that, or the analogy that your emotions are like a horse that can very easily carry you away if you don't know how to ride it and contain it. You know, you have to learn to ride your emotions like a rider rides a horse and move them in certain directions and rein them in. And that's a process. And even a good rider can at some points get thrown by their horse or their horse can get away from them a little bit or something like that, if they let their guard down. And part of raising a child is teaching them to rein in their emotions and ride their emotions instead of being ridden away by their emotions. But the last time we see Dimitri in this book, he's in, in a state of emotional chaos because he and Katerina are having a real scene with each other. And then Grushinka comes in and is jealous and everybody's, flipping out basically like Mitya says you won't forgive her cried Mitya with frantic reproach and you could refuse to forgive her when she begged your forgiveness herself Mitya exclaimed bitterly again um 
to Grushenka. Mitya's trying to reconcile. He wants to forgive Katya, and he wants to reconcile Grushenka and Katya, which is a beautiful impulse, but he's just, like, frantic and flipping out. And there's this moment um, during this frantic conversation between Katya and Mitya where the narrator says, So they murmured to one another, frantic words almost meaningless, perhaps not even true, but at that moment it was all true. (laughs) And they both believed what they said implicitly. I think emotional truth is hard to get at. Sometimes when Adam and I are having conversations about our emotions, <coughs> it's it gets murky and complicated. Like, well, did you feel this way or did you feel that way? Well, you know, kind of both, even though they seem opposite, is is actually the right answer, I think, right. sometimes. So Dostoevsky does not tie up Mitya in a neat package. He's still in emotional chaos at the end of this novel, and he's not quite sure if what he's saying is true. It feels true. He's saying it in that moment. That feels right to me. It feels realistic. Like, we we can be sanctified when we die and enter eternity fully. When we're on earth, it's always going to be kind of spotty and pro- process-oriented. Yeah. So, um, you know, Whitney brings up a great point about the end, about, like, just... The, the lack of resolution, like like it ends with a suspended cord. Um, but I think that that's, that's just realistic to life, that, that um, there isn't true resolution until death, um, and yet you can find levels of resolution. So, so at the end of A Hymn and a Secret, it says... Um, the whole truth, the whole truth, don't lie, Mitya repeated. So he's asking Alyosha, like... What what do you think? Am I am I guilty or not? And he says, Never for a single moment have I believed that you are the murderer. The trembling voice suddenly burst from Alyosha's breast, and he raised his right hand as if calling on God to witness his words. Mitch's whole face instantly lit up with bliss. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. He uttered slowly, <laughs> as if sighing after a swoon. Now you've revived me. Wouldn't you believe it? Up to now, I was afraid to ask you. Even you. You. Well, go. Go. You've strengthened me for tomorrow. God bless you. Well, go. Love, Ivan, was the last word that burst from Mitya. Alyosha walked out all in tears. Such a degree of insecurity in Mitya, such a degree of mistrust even of him, of Alyosha. All all this suddenly opened up before Alyosha such a an abyss of ineluctable grief and despair in the soul of his unfortunate brother as he had not suspected before. Deep, infinite compassion suddenly took hold of him and at once tormented him. His piercing heart ached terribly. Love, Ivan, he suddenly recalled Mitch's parting words, and he was on his way to Ivan. Since morning, he had needed terribly to see Ivan. Ivan tormented him no less than Mitya, and now, after his meeting with his brother, more than ever. And I think that that kind of that's a good way to end this episode is that in letting Dimitri grow, Alyosha absorbs the the torment of soul, and, and that the way that the way it describes him having infinite compassion uh, to the degree of tormenting him. I think that when we if we are Christians, when we let someone be fully themselves and they come to a point of seeing God, it necessarily 
has been like like we took a, an ember off of the fire of our faith and gave it to them and started their fire. And that's just how it works. Like, you know, that's what evangelism is about. And so uh, that that idea that even one little spark of a fire, of a flame, is out of Alyosha, it's replaced with that much darkness, that much, like, whatever was on the burden, burdening Mitya's heart, whatever you want to call it, grief, uh, guilt, you know, sadness, despair, etc., and so Alyosha in this moment is is so burdened and and that that's what he's carrying forward to Ivan is the sense of like he's already gone through this like incredibly emotional interaction with Dimitri and now he's going to an equally incredibly emotional interaction with Ivan <clears throat> and of course we're going to talk about Alyosha next episode. So the faith that it takes to go from telling Dimitri, like, I never believed for a second that you were the murderer, and, and seeing the bliss that he feels in that moment, because it's true. Like, it, it, it's the truth. And he's saying, you saw the, the, the genuine me. You saw the real me. And then having to go see Ivan, and then see Ivan, like, tell the story of, you know, how he's found out that Smerdikov murdered their father. It, it's just such a, such an emotional journey for Alyosha. And I think that because of Dimitri, principally Dimitri, although I would say equally Ivan, Alyosha is an exciting character because he has to go on these emotional journeys with his brothers. And, and to our point about, like, help the fool lest he stay in his error, like... Alyosha did that, and I think that the foolishness that Dimitri was going to fall into was like, I am, like, basically, I was the murderer. And, and as a result, he would have negated, basically, the, the justification that God had already given him. And he would have, like, married himself to his own works as a way of saying his worth in God's eyes. And as a result, he wouldn't have been able to, to minister to the, the other convicts in Siberia. Alyosha seems to see that Dimitri might grow bitter over time if he were being unjustly punished and knew it. He might go in with a lot of fervor, but that's just human nature that you might eventually say, well, haven't I served my time now? I'm not actually guilty. Um, he says, let's spare you that and try to let God redeem your life in another avenue. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that, that kind of hands the baton off from Dimitri to Alyosha. Um, so we, we will of course talk more about Dimitri and Ivan in the Alyosha episode, but we'll also talk about just Alyosha as a character, um, and, and why he is the, why this is a story about him. Like, I, I think it's it's clear that Dimitri is the protagonist of this novel, but that doesn't mean it's his story. Like the same way that Great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby is clearly the protagonist of the novel, or maybe you could say Daisy is, but uh, it's it's Nick Carraway's story. Like he's the one that, it's, it's almost like I'm telling you this story because it's important to me. And his way of viewing the story 
colors the whole story and prevails yes. ultimately. Yes. And so does Alyosha's way of viewing the world. Yes. It, it prevails ultimately in the novel and colors the whole thing. Yes. And, and even, I think, you know, changes Dimitri and Ivan. Yeah. It's like the, the spiritual power of humility and poverty of spirit, that you, the unsuspected power that triumphs in the end. Yes. Um, the meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah. That because partly because Alyosha will say this next time too, but he doesn't allow himself to be comfort, comfortably complacent. Like he's tempted to escape from the tumult of his brothers and his father in the world by entering a monastery. And Father Zosima says, no, you're needed. Those people, you know, the goddess plays those people in your family and you're needed in that family. Head back out into the world and get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. So that's where we'll pick up with Alyosha next episode. We have enjoyed talking about Dimitri, uh, who's one of my favorite characters in all of literature, just because he is so energetic, and, and, and his emotions are so beautifully detailed by Fyodor Dostoevsky that, that he had to have been able to um, just just gel with the, that. Like I, I think he identified so much with Dimitri in terms of like his his natural temperament, mm-hmm. he's he's got a Byronic vibe, like Mister Rochester. To yes. throw in my um, yes. my Jane obligatory Eyre. Jane Eyre reference, but I like Mister Rochester personally and his Byronic vibe. So maybe Dimitri will warm on me too. My students always say uh, Mister Rochester's the worst. Shane could do better. You know, he's an old man. He's weird. He's you know not honest. All sort of valid, but I like him anyway. Like his storminess. Well, and, and I, you know, I, I say that because here's, here's why I like Mitya right here. Mitya was almost breathless uttering his wild speech. He grew pale. His lips trembled. Tears poured from his eyes. Like, it, he just is so, he's so moved by his own experiences and emotions. And then there's another point where it's, it says, um, don't forget anyone else's things either, Mitya joked and promptly guffawed at his own joke. That sounds like... <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> someone in the room. <laughs> but but I, I think, like, God laughs. I mean, the name Isaac means God laughs. Like, he laughed at the way he uh, fulfilled his promise to Abraham. I think I grew up around people who were always holding back who said, well, people won't like me if I seem like I'm laughing at my own joke, or a man can't start crying, or whatever. Just a lot of limits and rules and self-consciousness. And I appreciated characters growing up who had a real flair for the dramatic or a willingness to go to intense places or seemed authentic and let they just let it all out. But because I didn't grow up around it, I also find that intimidating when I'm actually faced with it in real life, I found. So yeah. it's it's like I was drawn to my husband because of all of those things that seem refreshing to me. But sometimes I get overwhelmed by them and intimidated by them, too, because I'm, I didn't grow up having any practice being around that kind of unbridled uh, passion, <laughs> I True. guess. And, and, you know, I think that that's, that's like a good way to to set up Alyosha is this idea of like Dimitri 
as much as I enjoy him, he still makes me mad. Like, I still get frustrated with him. And I think it's because he's an emotionally evocative character. Whereas Alyosha is not the same. But we'll talk about, we'll talk about what role he plays, you know, in the next episode. So we'll look forward to talking to you then. We'll see you next time with Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 3, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Bye-bye.